what, what would Jesus pray about? What's, I, I know what Jesus tells me ought to be on my heart and on my mind before I go to the Lord in prayer. What was on Jesus' heart? What was on Jesus' mind as he goes before the Father, especially on his last night? And that's what we have in John chapter 17. So I'm going to read, I'm actually going to read the whole prayer. That seems like a lot, uh, but we're going, to spend, uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks going through it. And I think it's just that beneficial to, the, the first disciples would have heard the whole prayer. So it's good for us to hear the whole prayer. Uh, let's give attention to God's holy and infallible word. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, as we turn again to this prayer to consider it, to study it, to know it, Lord, really what we seek is to know you. Really what we seek is to, is to grow in you, to understand the mind, your mind, Lord Jesus, and what that means for us. Would you bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your word for our good and your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Johann Sebastian Bach, you probably know that name. He is a famous composer, arguably one of the greatest composers of classical music, incredibly gifted from an early age. He would sneak down. Um, his, his parents passed away at an early age, and so he lived with his brother, and he would actually, he would actually sneak down. His brother was a, a church organist, which doesn't sound like a very glamorous profession, but uh, he would sneak down, and his brother would lock up all of the sacred music, all of the church music, um, so that, but because he felt like it was far too important, he didn't want the kids to, uh, to mess it up. And so um, after his brother had gone to bed at night, Bach would, would, would slip down into, um, into the room where the music was kept, I guess, and do his brother's study, and he would figure out a way to kind of reach in the cabinet and roll the music up so that he could then pull it out so that he could unroll it, and what he would do is he would copy it, uh, and then he would roll the music back up and put it back in there so that later on, after he had done copying, he would go to bed, but so that later on he could play it. Uh, he, could, he could practice it, and he could actually hone his skills. He went on to be a church organist himself, but his music uh, really far exceeded the use just in the church, especially in box day. He would, the... The trend, and it's not necessarily a bad trend, but the trend was towards simplicity. Uh, and so Bach's music was very complex and was very beautiful, and, and really it was genius. And that was hard to worship. It was hard to lead people in worship with beautifully complex music when you really just want to sit and listen to it. And so uh, he didn't really find his home in the church, but he was still driven by his faith. He, had, he was driven by this... Um, this, this knowledge, this acknowledgement that Jesus had given them, given him this gift, and he wanted to spend himself for Jesus' sake. And so, as Bach grew and as he moved from place to place, of course, he garnered acclaim and really wasn't even necessarily appreciated in his own day, but much, much later in the 18th century. And so, um, before, at the beginning of every piece of, uh, of every piece that he would write, 
Um, it's rumored that he would, he would write I-N-J, um, three initials, Latin, um, and what they would mean in English is in Jesus' name. That was at the beginning. And then at the end of his composition, as he would finish it up, he would write uh, an abbreviation for another Latin phrase, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So one of the world's greatest composers was actually a devout Christian, and everything that he wrote, he wrote to the glory of God alone. That was how he finished every piece. And I wonder, are you like Bach when you wake in the morning and when your head hits the pillow in the evening? Can you say with Bach, S D G, Soli Deo Gloria? That's really what Jesus does. You notice that here at the beginning of his prayer, this is what we talked about last week, that the, the first thing on Jesus' heart to bring before the Father is glorify me. Glorify me that I may glorify you. God's glory is foremost on Jesus' mind. And I didn't mention this last week, but it's actually how he ends the prayer as well in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And so the prayer, Jesus' prayer, begins and ends with God's glory. It is the anchor that holds the prayer fast. I wonder, is it, is it the anchor that holds your soul fast? Is it the food that fuels your day? Why it's so important that Jesus prays that God would glorify him first, right, and and what we, we talked about this, what it means for God to glorify the Son, Jesus says the hour has come. The moment is here. It's time for Jesus to yield up his life. It's time for Jesus to die. That is how God is most glorified. God is most glorified when Jesus is crucified. And the reason that is so dreadfully important is that the rest of the, if that doesn't happen... If Jesus is not crucified, then the rest of the prayer means nothing. In fact, there's no point in praying. If Jesus is not crucified and God is not glorified in Him, then there's no reason to really pray because we no longer have access to the Father. No longer do we have access because we're left in our sin. And so the most important thing is that Jesus be glorified. Jesus' glory and suffering must come first so that you and I can know the glory of eternal life in knowing Him. But what comes next? What comes after the glory in the suffering? There's really two themes, and I wrestled, I struggled to know kind of which one to go with first. Uh, the, the two themes that really rise to the surface, there's lots of stuff in here, uh, but the two themes that really rise to the surface for me are mission and unity. Those are the two things that Jesus really prays for. And so this week, we're going to look at this theme of mission, right? What it means to be uh, set apart and sent. That's, that's how Jesus prays, especially for these first disciples, right? He says, uh, God set me apart 
so that they may be set apart. You have sent me, so I am sending them. So we're going to talk about mission. And then uh, next, we're going to talk about the theme of unity, right? And that's really what God prays for everyone who believes after these first disciples. I think there are the elements are of, of prayer there for both, but um, he prays that they may be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. And so we're going to talk about what that means. But today, it's mission. And here's what we see, particularly in verses 6 through 19, that Christians are set apart to be sent. Christians are set apart to be sent into the world. Look at how Jesus opens his prayer. After he, after he prays for himself, he says this in verse 6. I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, just right there, uh, there, is a, there is a depth. And even one of the reasons why it's so hard to preach John 17, um, it's, it's kind of like excavating the Marianas Trench. There's just so much here. I mean, when you, when you get to John 17, there's really no way to plumb the depths of what... I mean, we're talking about the heart of Jesus in prayer before His Father. And so we could spend, we could spend a year probably just here pulling some of these things out. But Jesus says he has revealed the Father's name to, to manifest, to, to reveal, to make known, to disclose. And that's really, that's really what Jesus' mission has been. If you think back to John chapter 1, right, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. Jesus' job, so to speak, in the flesh is to reveal the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you listen to Jesus. If you want to know what... God is like you watch Jesus. And so Jesus narrates God. That's what he has come to do. And he says that he has revealed God's name to some people. Who are these people that Jesus prays for? And there's really, we're going to look at this from two perspectives, from two different views. From one view, right, one view is God's view of these people. And from God's view, they are his. They are His own. They are the ones that He has given to Jesus. So let's start there. Verse 6, I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So he, we're talking about this specific group of people, and what is most characteristic about them is that they belong to God. Right? They belong to God, and they have been pulled out of the world. Now, I don't understand, and then they have been given to the Son. And so I, I don't really understand, the, you know, I don't even pretend to know how the Trinity works. We don't really get a whole lot of information on that. We don't really get to look behind the curtain all that much. But here Jesus kind of pulls it aside, and here's what we see. We see that God has a people, and he has loved them, and they have belonged to him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, that there is a particular group of people who belongs to the Father, who belongs to God. 
And if that unsettles you, I understand. It is unsettling to not be in control. It is unsettling to not be, um, as we talked about in Sunday school, morally neutral. But here's what I have realized about God in the Bible is He does not mind unsettling me. He does not meet me in my comfort. Rather, more often than not, He confronts my comfort. In fact, He must confront my comfort to rescue me. He must disturb me. And so, here we see that God has a people, a people that He has loved before the foundation of the world. It's what He says in John 10, that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. So, God gives him sheep, and those sheep listen to his voice. It's what Jesus says, and it's what Jesus prayed in verse 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God does not give eternal life to the world. Even John 3.16 doesn't say that. John 3.16 says that God loves the world, but that those who receive salvation are those who believe in the Son. And we get here and we find that those who believe in the Son are those whom the Father has given to the Son. And Jesus says they are, they are out of the world, whom you gave me out of the world. They were a part of the world. To belong to the world is to be at war with God and under His judgment. And that's what these people were, but God took them out of the world. And He gave them to Jesus. And so if you would imagine this, it's, a, it's as if God goes and He opens up the lid. If you're on a septic tank, you know what a perilous adventure this can be, right? He, he excavates and He opens up the septic tank. And He plunges His hands in and He pulls out His own. And he hands them and he says, Here, son, pay for these. This is, this is who my soul delights in. That is the love of God before the foundation of the world. I can't fathom grace like that. God reaches into the world and he pulls out his beloved and he hands them to the son and he says, Pay for these. And so that's the view from God's chair. They are... They, they belong to the Father. They've been given to the Son. From God's perspective, they are His own. And then there's man's perspective. Look again in verse 6. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. From the human point of view, let's keep reading. They know that everything that you have given me is from you. They have believed that you sent me. And so, from God's view, they are His own. From man's view, it is trusting in the Lord Jesus. It is believing and keeping the Word. Um, what's probably most surprising to me about verse 6 is it says, They have kept your Word. Now listen, Jesus is talking to these first 11 disciples. If you have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John... If you've read just John, and you are acquainted at all with these early disciples, you should be surprised when he says, they have kept your word. Right? If anything comes to the fore about these early disciples, it is confusion. Right? What, here's what you would expect Jesus to say. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have been repeatedly confused about everything I've said. 
that is what that that is the story of the disciples in the Gospels, right? Um, repeated confusion and failure. So, what does Jesus mean, right? If um, what's the old the old adage that you never get a second chance to make a first impression? The first, second, third, fourth, and fifth impressions that the disciples have made in the gospel is not an overwhelmingly good one. But Jesus says they have kept your word. What does he, what does he mean by that? Let's keep reading. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. For all their faults and failures, these eleven men have responded in faith to Jesus. That's what Jesus means when he says they have kept your word. Right? There's a, when when the, the word there is logos, okay, and it's... It's the same word used of Jesus in chapter 1, that he is the word of God. What Jesus is saying, he's, he's not, it would be wrong to compare the disciples at this point with how they will look later in life. After Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit, they understand things much better and their lives are transformed by it. At this point, they're still in the dark and they're very confused. But there is, this, there is a crucial distinction. The distinction is not between the disciples now and the disciples later. The distinction is between the disciples right now and the world. The world has responded to Jesus with unbelief and with hostility. The disciples, even though they don't perfectly get it, they still get it. Better yet, even though they don't perfectly understand him, they still get him. Turn with me to John chapter 6, and you'll see a, a vivid illustration of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus preaches a particularly difficult sermon in John chapter 6 where he actually tells people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. We won't go into all that, but when he says it, many of the people, by this, at this point, many, uh, there, there's a large crowd following Jesus, but after this sermon, the crowds begin to walk away, right? The, the, word is, the word is too hard. And Jesus actually, instead of, instead of relenting, instead of pulling back, Jesus even presses in further. He says, oh, is this offensive to you? What if I tell you that the only way to actually receive my words is if the Spirit is in you, that your flesh is useless? How about that? Is that offensive? So Jesus doesn't back off. He pushes in. And he says in verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is given him by the Father. That same word that comes up so much in John 17. The Father sure does give a lot. Verse 66, John 6, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
That's what Jesus is talking about in John 17 when he says, They have kept your word. He's not saying they have obeyed everything I've said perfectly. He's not saying they have a perfect understanding. He is saying, when the world has rejected me, they have accepted me. They have come to understand that I speak for you. And so their knowledge, their understanding is the right place to begin. They understand what is true and good, and they have accepted it. And so... So this is, in one sense, this is the Christian from two perspectives. From God's view, she is the recipient of His free grace. Chosen before the foundation of the world, loved completely by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and given the Holy Spirit. That is God's, that is God's grace at work in the life of the believer. And that's from God's chair, from sitting in God's chair. From man's chair, from man's perspective, she keeps the word. She strives to understand the Lord Jesus, and she strives to obey what he says. And so that faith, which is what that is, that is responding to God's offer of salvation in trust, in faith, right? God's grace precedes her faith. But that is a Christian from, from two perspectives. Now, one more thing needs to be said, and it's important to say it because this is the way that the Bible presents it. Yes, grace comes before faith. faith my faith flows out of God's grace at work in me. But God's grace does not replace my faith. Notice that Jesus credits the disciples with keeping the word. He credits the disciples with obedience, with understanding, with belief. He does not say, you have obeyed for them. You have understood for them. You have believed for them. And so here you have it, God's sovereignty at work in grace and our responsibility at work in faith. And what we usually do when we try to make sense of these two things that seem at loggerheads is we, either, we run usually in one of two directions. One is in the direction of fatalism. And fatalism says, why pray? Why work? Whatever will be, will be. Whatever happens, happens. But Jesus, who knows better than any person who's ever lived, Jesus, who knows better than anyone else, the sovereignty of God in all things, what does He do? He knows that the Father is in complete control. How does He respond to that? He prays. He teaches. He loves. He works. And so, fatalism is not biblical. The other direction that we, also, uh, that we often also run to, we could call activism. Right? Fatalism says... You know, fatalism, if fatalism sits on its hands, activism leaves God out of the picture. Activism says, well, God's met me halfway, but I've got to get the rest of the way there. Jesus breaks the record, but I better keep my nose clean. Jesus sets the pace, but I better keep up. That's 
activism. And that's not biblical either. In fact, the gospel, the good news, rejects both. To activism, it says that God doesn't just come halfway. God comes all the way. God comes all the way to rescue the ones that He loves. He is the one who calls and draws and causes the new birth. Ezekiel 36, Romans 8, John 3. And then to fatalism, right? God comes all the way, not just halfway. And then to fatalism, the Gospel says our hearts are made new by God's gracious interruption and they respond in faith. To fatalism, right? We hear the Word, we receive the Word, and we keep the Word. And so the Gospel rejects both fatalism and activism and instead holds both, of, both intention. God's grace saves you and calls out your faith. And it is not God's faith working for you, it is your faith. And we are out of time. And we didn't even get to the mission. These are the people that Jesus prays for. They are people who are loved by God from before the world began. They are redeemed by the Son. And as we're going to see soon, they are set apart. God has spoken in Jesus. That's what, that's what really characterized these first disciples. They didn't get Jesus fully, but they understood enough to know this. He is God's representative. He has the words of eternal life. Are you like Peter? Peter said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friend, there is nowhere else to go. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. Let's pray. Gracious God, would you take these words, would you bury them deep, would you bring out new life, By the power of your Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.